Okay, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the LSE for our very special event. My name is Rebecca Elliott. I'm an assistant professor in sociology here at the London School of Economics, and it is my great pleasure to be chairing the British Journal of Sociology annual lecture for 2018. Before I introduce tonight's speaker, I'm pleased to announce the winner of the BJS prize. This prize is awarded to what we consider to be the best most significant, provocative, intriguing, creative, exciting, thought-provoking piece published in the journal over a two-year period, running from March 2017 to December 2018. And I'm delighted to share that this year's prize goes to Gabriel Abend for his article published in June 2018, Outline of a Sociology of Decisionism. The paper draws our attention to the ubiquity of decisions and decision-making in society, and it argues that we, un we actually understand very little conceptually about what counts as a decision, about what must be done in order for it to be a decision, and about who or what qualifies as a decision maker. Moreover, not much has been done empirically to investigate how decisions get made in a number of social contexts from everyday life through politics and business, education, law, technology, science. Though it must be said, thanks to the work of tonight's speaker, we do know quite a bit more now about how groups of academics come together and recognize and evaluate quality. And she could undoubtedly shed some light on how we made the decision about who would win this prize. <laughs> Aben's paper stands out because besides being rigorous and well-argued and properly thought through, it's written in a provocative, engaging, and entertaining style. So one of the reviewers commented that sociology needs more writing like this, arguing that the paper shows you can make serious arguments without being so serious all the time. And the editorial team and journal board members fully concur. We had an excellent pool of papers to choose from for this prize, but Abens really stood out, so many congratulations to him. As many of you know, he's an associate professor of sociology at NYU, and we'll be asking him to make a podcast for us in which he reflects on this paper, and we'll post this on our website in due course. And so we come to the 2018 BJS annual lecture. This event has been running for more than a decade now, with a series of distinguished speakers who have set out their own visions of the most significant questions and debates within their own areas of the discipline. Each lecture is usually published in the journal's March issue with a set of responses by other scholars in the field. And one of the central aims of the lecture is to stimulate inquiry into the foundations and scope of the discipline. And in this sense, we could think of no more appropriate speaker than Professor Michelle Lamont, and that's because Michelle Lamont has shaped so many areas of the discipline. In over 100 articles and dozens of books, she's cast her keen analytical gaze across a vast expanse of topics, including, as I mentioned earlier, academic peer review, uh, but also the sociology of moral, cultural, racial, and class boundaries and boundary making, culture and poverty, resilience and well-being, Bourdieu, universities and higher education, the intersections of race and religion, stigma and discrimination, and tonight, the current crisis in America. She's also a renowned qualitative researcher, a longstanding source of best practices in interview and comparative methods in particular. I learned how to do sociology 
and the students I now teach learn to do sociology in large measure from reading both her methodological papers and from the example of her own deeply researched work. Michelle Lamont is professor of sociology and of African and African American studies and the Robert I. Goldman Professor of European Studies at Harvard University. She previously served as the president of the American Sociological Association and as chair of the Council for European Studies. She's also the recipient of the 2017 Erasmus Prize for her contributions to the social sciences in Europe and the rest of the world. And it is indeed a great honor to have her with us tonight. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSEBJSAL. I would ask you to please put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. Uh, that goes for Michelle as well, apparently. <laughs> uh, this evening's event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. And as usual, after the lecture, there will be an opportunity for you to put your questions to our speaker. But now will you please join me in welcoming Professor Michelle Lamont to deliver her lecture entitled, From Having to Being Self-Worth in the Current Crisis of American Society. Rebecca, thank you so much for this generous introduction. I had a, cafe, a lunch with one of your colleagues who told me that uh, when Talcott Parson gave a lecture in this hall a few decades ago, there's a, a striker who walked back and forth a few times. For those of you who are too young who don't know, this is a person who walks around naked. And it was a very popular thing to do in the 60s. So uh, I hope that uh, I won't have the same fate as Talcott Parson. So it's a, you know, it's a moment where I wonder, where is the thingy? Do the where is it? PowerPoint. Let's go. Use it ah, okay, I'll use that. Okay, no problem. Good. Okay, so the current crisis. You probably wonder which crisis I'm talking about. As I was preparing this talk, I had a number of conversation with my colleagues about sources of hope in American society, and I can tell you that everyone is pretty discouraged, which convinced me that it's really a good moment to talk about this topic. So first I want to thank uh, Nigel Dodd for the invitation. It's really a great honor to be here today. This is very prestigious lecture, so it's a, a great honor for me, especially given who are the people who preceded me here. So my lecture concerns these current challenges that American society faces, and it builds on uh, the presidential address that I delivered uh, last year to the American Sociological Association, which concerns how to address the recognition gaps. And uh, this lecture concerned both an agenda for sociologists to figure out how can we go about uh, drawing on the social science knowledge to figure out how to understand how groups gain recognition and how groups become destigmatized. In other words, it's also about how to extend cultural membership to the largest number. So what really concerns me is the problem of social inclusion in American society. And with this talk, I extend this line of thinking to the current situation in the U.S. by focusing on the failures of the American dream across the social sciences, and now on how neoliberalism 
fosters uh, a hardening of group boundaries that affect negatively uh, collective well-being for everyone. So, and I will argue that to address the situation, we need to figure out how to develop new narratives of hope. And in order to do this, we can draw also on the knowledge of cultural sociology in understanding how the public sphere works. So my hope is to draw on social, sociological knowledge to help us think about how to engineer societies differently. And the narratives of hope that I'm going to be focusing on, and that's in fact a smaller segment of the talk than what I had originally intended. It will focus on plurality of criteria of evaluation, on uh, reframing, how to reframe stigmatized group, and on publicizing ordinary forms of universalism. And, but this has to be grounded in an understanding of how the, the public sphere is working today, how it is structured. So I hope that these uh, approaches will help us uh, address the current uh, uh, explosion of the new wave of pessimism that everyone is experiencing every day and that is feeding populism in the U.S. as much as in Europe. So my argument is structured in two parts. The first one is the diagnosis, and it asks, has the, the American dream become an impossible dream across all the social sciences? The answer is yes. And uh, we know that this growing inequality is having a negative consequence for everyone, but I will also uh, argue that it affects negatively even the top 20% of the society, this group that is supposed to be winning out of this current moment of growing inequality. But it's also fostering a rigidification of boundaries toward the poor, toward ethno-racial minorities and immigrants. So nothing good is happening. Part two will be about a way forward beyond the American dream by focusing on these narratives of hope and broadening how can we broaden cultural membership, which is partly urgent at the time when we know that the public sphere is becoming more polarized due to the effect of the social media that is feeding the cultural silos that we live in. So, um, so my chosen title from having to being will resonate with those of you who are old enough to have read Herbert Marcuse's classical book, One Dimensional Man, which had a profound effect on the May 68 generation. So like Marcuse, I'm concerned with the criteria of evaluation that we use to assess what we do with our lives at the time when material success, having, dominates all other dimensions of uh, human life. In contrast, being refers to the many possible aspects of social life uh, that we as humans can mobilize to assess ourselves, not only as workers and professionals, but also as parents, as friends, as community members, as spiritual beings, etc. So it's really about, you know, the, 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 the ideal of living fully as human beings along the lines that Marx proposed in uh, the German ideology, for those of you who are familiar with the thesis on Fairback. So mobilizing a wide range of criteria as opposed to a single uh, measure, hierarchy or status order, presents a clear advantage. Hierarchies are zero-sum, as they typically involve ranking on a single scale losers and winners, for instance, the rich and the poor. In contrast, if we combine a number of criteria, 
It is possible for many to rate highly at once, that is, to have top marks on a diversity of criteria that are simultaneously salient. Okay, you can have many winners if you rate instead of rank and if you have several criteria. So I will suggest that finding out how to institutionalize a plurality of criteria of evaluation may contribute to destigmatize groups that do not meet the dominant standard of evaluation. It can also promote forms of ordinary uh, universalism that are based on standard evaluation that can be met by everyone, not only the upper middle class. So such change are partly desirable at the current moment, after 40 years of neoliberalism, in a period when having criteria have become, have come to exercise a powerful hegemony over our societies. So the American dream is unreachable for a growing number of people, while the lifestyle and values of the upper middle class are systematically offered as an ideal to the population as a whole. So this creates an existential crisis for many, which manifests itself in the hopelessness that feed the pervasive anxiety of the middle class, the growing isolation of the working class, and the spread of the opioid epidemics. So even the alleged winners of the growing inequality, this upper middle class, is not triumphant. Indeed, despite its economic prosperity, it's facing a mounting concern about social reproduction and the threat of downward mobility, especially since the 2008 recession. So competitiveness, economic insecurity, feed overwork, and a decline in quality of life. And as we will see, its youth is experiencing a massive mental health crisis. So this youth is often rejecting the parental pressures to climb the social ladder, despite intensified efforts at helicopter parenting. Young people prefer to opt for a life oriented toward authenticity and intimacy as opposed to the pursuit of material bliss. So I focus on narratives of hope because uh, the social sciences teaching, teach us that Hope is essential for social resilience. I get that from my friend, the medical anthropologist, Catherine Panter-Briggs, who spent a lot of time studying children who live in the Syrian refugee camp of Lebanon. And she found that children who are able to develop narratives of hope that are shared with one parents are the ones that develop most uh, resilience. They are able to project themselves in the future with the support of significant others with whom they can develop visions of what this future may be about. So the focus and narratives and on plots which connect past, present, and future are particularly important also because they mobilize emotions which are essential for creating resonance. So basically we need to create stories with each other if we want to feed resilience. But the kind of resilience I'm concerned with here is not at all the kind of resilience that has been popularized by the media with the work of psychologists such as Angela Duckworth, who has worked on grit, and this is omnipresent in American media today, and the kind of resilience that is also popularized by think tanks such as the World Bank. Instead, I want to focus on social resilience, which is a topic of the book here, uh, which is the capacity of groups that are enabled by institutions, for instance, by policies or by the law, that send messages about who belongs, who matters, and who is worthy. 
So this kind of resilience is fed by the cultural repertoires that people have at their disposal to make sense of their lives and by the tools that they can mobilize to buffer themselves against uh, negative messages, against stigma in particular. So this does not depend on the exceptional fortitude of individuals who are able to have the gumption to pull themselves by their britches, but on features of the environment that can be engineered, the production and availability of narratives about possible futures that resonate and inspire. This is a topic that is now being studied by sociologists. For instance, Maggie Fry has studied how young women in Malawi come to prioritize getting an education over romance and early marriage. It's a social production. So let's, now let's turn to uh, the American dream. So this American dream, many British people may think it's, it's a joke, it's a dominant ideology. Well, it has functioned extremely well as an extraordinarily powerful engine for American society for most of the 20th century. So the term was coined only in the early 30s, but it quickly diffused to the point where, as a cultural script, it has uh, contributed to attracting a great many immigrants to the U.S. It has stimulated the generation that benefited from the GI Bill to aim for the sky, and it has fed the extraordinary expansion of higher education that followed. So it's a very good example of how uh, myths feed action and feed reality. As a highly performing hope machine, it proved remarkably effective at appealing to hearts and mind and to orient action and define behavior. So grounded in the notion of American exceptionalism and manifest destiny, it definitely obfuscated the fact that American material prosperity for much of the 20th century was grounded in no small measure on the back, I mean was built on the back of underpaid women, African Americans, and other minorities. Yet, as a collective myth, it delivered inspiration admirably well, and it served efficient, effectively as a motive for action for a great many people and for a great many years. But today, experts in inequality continue to be fixated on the notion that more people should have access to the dream, despite well-established patterns of failure. Most of the literature on inequality is really about uh, equating, realizing the dream with joining the upper middle class. That is, more people should get a college degree, more people should become professionals and managers, more people should enjoy the type of consumption or comfort level that has been, in fact, accessible mostly the top 20% of the population. And they simply overlook the fact that 100% of the population cannot be squeezed into the top 20% bracket of the income distribution. With this fixation on making it, these experts are often concerned with ways to grow the pie or to move its slice this way or that way so that it can benefit for more people. In contrast, I argue that the American dream is a bankrupt idea and that it needs to be replaced by other narratives of hope, not by one single narrative, but by many other narratives, and that we need to figure out how to engineer new collective scenarios about our future moving forward. So the background of this analysis is the spread of neoliberalism, which building on a chapter by Evans and Sewell in, the, in this book on social resilience in the neoliberal era. We, that is the Team Successful Society program, which I've led for 17 years with Peter Hall, 
uh, we regard as a set of syncretic changes that operate simultaneously at the economic, political, administrative, and cultural level to maximize um, market efficiency. And in my case, I'm partly concerned with the cultural aspects of this process, that is, with the scripts of the ideal self that have been widely institutionalized under neoliberalism and which emphasize material success, social status, competitiveness in entrepreneurship, as well as the privatization of risk or self-reliance. So these scripts, these models of what we should look like as human beings, uh, have become even more salient over the last decades, particularly and particularly more recently with uh, the election of Donald Trump, who many would argue tries to incarnate uh, these virtues. So this, these scripts reinforce the salient of virtues associated with the American dream, such as with a focus on material success and competitiveness. Now, neoliberalism has spread rapidly since the 1980s, in the U.S. and the U.K. in particular. So this figure here depicts the diffusion of the term based on a LexisNexis search of the content of uh, online newspapers in the U.S. and Europe from 78 to 2017. And we see here the salience of the term has increased particularly rapidly over the last five years with the biggest jump from 2015 to 16. So the term is roughly uh, equally present in American and European publications, which surprised me. I thought it would be much more salient in Europe. So with the accelerated diffusion of neoliberalism, these neoliberal scripts of self influence whether specific class and specific groups are perceived as worthy or stigmatized. And they also affect whether group boundaries are becoming more rigid or more permeable. So roughly the argument is that the group that best demonstrate the neoliberal virtues, the upper middle class, who, which I define as college-educated professional and managers, is becoming more hegemonic culturally and is constantly depicted in the media as having the most desirable set of virtues and lifestyle. Concomitantly, the classes that are perceived as less self-reliant, such as the poor and the working class, become more stigmatized with important ripple effects for various groups such as African-Americans and illegal immigrants who are perceived as lacking self-reliance, as using a disproportionate share of collective resources, which is why, you know, Americans are now freaking out about this pseudo-caravan that is coming up uh, Central America. They're going to come and use our welfare state and our health care and crowd our prisons and live on uh, at our expense. So this bifurcation of framing between the upper middle class and the stigmatized group results from a growing it results in a growing recognition gap that feeds the multiplication of recognition claim that we've witnessed over the last 10 years ranging from occupy to black lives matter to the recent movement in favor of uh, immigrant rights. So it's imperative that we narrow this gap which I believe can be achieved in part by promoting new narrative of hope that are accessible to all. It's not the only solution. Uh, Rebecca was telling me that Eric Kleinenberg was here recently talking about his emphasis on the importance of constructing infrastructures. It's very important, but I think we can also aim to affect directly the cultural scripts through which we understand the relative uh, status of groups. 
So let's talk now about the collapse of this American dream. So many uh, economists have, of course, written about the acute concentration of wealth at the top that characterizes the American economy, especially since the 2008 recession. At the same time, it has become far more difficult for most Americans to experience uh, upward mobility. So one of the most illustrious analysis of this is the paper by Raj Chetty and colleagues, which, which showed that 50% of children born in 1984 can earn more than their parents at the same age, compared to 92% of the children born in 1940. So there's strong consensus that uh, upward mobility is far less within reach than it was a few decades ago. So given this new reality, faith in the American dream is declining. And, but this is less pronounced among uh, the college educated than it is among uh, high, those with high school degree. But the distance between the two groups in this belief is growing over time. So there's tons of data on this. I'll just tell you that in 1998, about 68 percent of people believed the economic system was fair. With, while 29% perceive it was unfair. But in, 19, in 2013, only 44% believe the economic system is fair, while 50% believe it, was un, it is unfair. So these perceptions really influence whether or not they want to pursue the American dream. But one, okay, there's contradictory statistics, but I think when you look at the overall picture, one can safely conclude that the, if the myth is not dead, it is far more fragile than it has been in the past. Immigrants appear to be the group most immune to questioning the myth. They move to the U.S. because they believe in the myth. So independently of how much uh, Americans still believe, there's plenty of evidence that the myth is simply not delivering for the vast majority of uh, the population. And this is obvious if we review how each class is faring. So now to start with the upper middle class, many have argued that this upper middle class uh, is the unmitigated winner of the economic changes of the last decade. It controls more wealth today than it did throughout the 20th century. It has benefited from a winner-take-all economy as it concentrates economic, cultural, and social capital that can be converted into all kinds of advantages, such as access to the best school and to the best real estate market that operate as social escalators for upward mobility. But at the same time, despite these advantages, the upper middle class is experiencing challenges. So for instance, let's take fertility. A 2014 survey from the New York Times asked people in the top income bracket and the lower income bracket whether they have been able to have as many children as they wanted, and if not, why not? 21% of those uh, in the upper category said, responded negatively and attributed their decision to not having enough money to have more children. And this percentage was 14% among those in the lower income category. It's not a huge difference, but it's significant nevertheless that it's those with most money who are most likely to say that they didn't have more children due to the cost of having children. So members of the upper middle class are perpetually worried about the possible downward mobility of their children. So they have smaller families and work hard to pass on as many advantages as possible. 
So they cannot resist, and even if they're progressive, they cannot resist engaging in an area of behavior aimed at guaranteeing access to the best colleges for their children. Some will hire private tutors and college counselors. At the same time, they tend to believe in meritocracy and to be blind to the many ways in which they're passing on Privileges. They believe that their children are succeeding because they're really smart. And similarly, the children are taking full ownership for their success and downplaying this passing on of, of privileges. So unsurprisingly, given this intensified investment, the younger middle class youth faces considerable pressure to be successful. Qualitative studies are documenting the negative impact of such pressures on teens in particular. So lives of hyper-competition lead many to feel overwhelmed and to engage in substance abuse. There's a huge, people are smoking a lot of pot in the U.S. these days. I presume it's happening here as well. Uh, and indeed, uh, lives of hyper-competition lead, um, they, these kids are found to be, uh, Lives of hypercompetition lead many to feel uh, overwhelmed, and uh, these are found to be higher among high-income kids than among inner-city kids, in contrast to widespread stereotype. In particular, the UCLA National Survey of freshmen shows an increase in the number of students who say that they're feeling overwhelmed from 1985 to 2015. Everywhere, all universities report that the mental health services are extremely busy, uh, there's a real crisis. The American Psychological Association is concerned about an epidemic of mental health problem. And this is particularly the case for youth in the highest annual income uh, bracket as compared to the lower income bracket group. So this uh, particular paper that I cite here provides a really good summary of, uh, of that literature. In opposition to their parents, millennials and younger kids develop other attitudes, other values. They are more concerned with being happy and with authenticity. This is clear from many uh, surveys that we have reviewed. The youth singles out values such as living life to the fullest at 66.5%. They often prioritize relational goals, being close to their friends, having a balance, oriented toward building meaningful connection with peoples in their lives. The picture is not rosier for the upper middle class adults, uh, 55 years old and more, who for their part also have mental health challenges. And this is found to be particularly the case. This is the youth. Okay, there's a mistake here. No, okay, well, uh, the parents, uh, especially non-Hispanic whites, they cite money and work as the most common reasons for, for stress. So they perceive that there's a general decline in quality of life associated with overwork. So despite these obvious flaws, the lifestyle, behaviors, and values of the upper middle class are repeatedly offered as a model for everyone to follow. So this is, for instance, evidenced by a study conducted by sociologist Richard Butch. So in a content analysis of over 400 primetime American sitcoms totaling 68 years of television, he found that 90% of all characters on these sitcom were either upper middle class professional managers or working class, and the working class represented only 10% of these characters. And over this period of 68 years, it, 
the number of working class people increased by only 1%. But in the vast majority of the cases, the working class characters were presented as buffoons or as incompetent, immature, ignorant, and irresponsible. So no glorification of the working class, at least when it comes to American sitcoms. Uh, there's a replication of this study in Sweden that found similar, reached similar conclusion. So exposure to rags to riches stories in entertainment television has served to strengthen belief in the American dream. The type of entertainment uh, programming has grown exponentially in recent decades, and a student of political um, communication, Yuji Kim, has shown that watching such program has had a significant effect on believing in the American dream, particularly among Republicans and among those who are politically optimistic. Uh, the impact of watching such program is as strong as that of being a child of immigrant. So they may suggest, this may suggest that much of entertainment television operates as a gigantic publicity machine for the distinctive scripts of self associated with neoliberalism. So the working class simply does not find its reality reflected in any of these programs, yet it spends a lot of time watching television. So what are the impact of this on the working class or the bottom half of the class structure? Well, it's pretty terrible. In the early 1990s, I interviewed blue-collar workers and low-status white-collar workers in Paris and New York for my book, The Dignity of Working Man, and I find that American workers were somewhat less critical toward the upper middle class, the Ken and Barbie, the Ken and Barbie people, as they were dubbed by one of my respondents. They were less critical toward this group than their French counterparts. More specifically, they were more likely to measure their own value by the standard of socioeconomic success and ultimately to think of themselves as losers as they could not possibly score well by the criteria they value most. This is even more true today than it was in the 90s, given the growth of inequality and the declining standard of living for those who are not college-educated. For many of those working and lower-middle-class people, the American dream is increasingly becoming an impossible or a desperate dream. So the dream has collapsed, and a large number are left empty-ended. To measure oneself daily by the standard of middle-class consumption can only lead to self-destruction if the means to access this status are simply unattainable. So when it comes to the poor, the situation is even more terrible, of course. The, the growth of extreme poverty has been documented by, by many sociologists. Martin Gillens and others have shown at the same time that boundaries toward the poor who are presumed to lack self-sufficiency, are growing more rigid. In fact, low-income populations are so deeply stigmatized in the American context that they are rarely perceived as stigmatized and very few mobilized to defend their rights, which is obviously not the case for, let's say, African Americans. Bias against the poor is demonstrated in American preferential support of policies that benefit the rich when it comes to taxation, Rejection of policies that directly benefit the poor in favor of non-traditional form of redistribution such as education and in outright expression of resentment toward welfare recipients, which are widely documented. 
So this somber diagnosis suggests that there's a growing disconnect between the ideals that American society offers its members and what it can actually deliver. So the situation feeds hopelessness and other uh, ills such as mounting violence in low-income communities, the, ra the rapid, uh, the raging opioid epidemic, and the growing self-isolation of the working class. So in particular, Andrew Sherlin has argued that as working class men are increasingly unable to perform their role as providers, fewer marry and get involved in traditional working class organization, so the Knights of Columbus, for instance, and in religious organization. Many experience despair and find re refuge in self-isolation in their basement, where they spend a lot of time um, on the social media. So when confronted with such a dire situation, it is imperative that we find ways forward to rekindle collective feelings of hope. So if this is not depressing enough, there is more. It's not a joyful talk, isn't it? <laughs> In addition to this, we also have a rigidification of group boundaries, which I'm now going to talk about briefly. So the hardening of group boundaries is directed toward the groups that are associated with poverty, who are often stereotyped as lacking self-sufficiency, particularly African-Americans, Hispanics, and illegal immigrants. So again, these groups are often perceived as drawing more on collective resources than the average American. They are presumed to abuse educational, carceral, and health system to which they are not contributing because they're not, they're presumed to not be taxpayers. And this really hurts the working class because they hate people who are sponges. They, they are very proud of the fact that they're self-reliant. They define their own identity through their self-reliance, and they cannot stand parasites. That was very clear in the interviews I did for the dignity of working man. Now I'm going to present figures that will show their changing attitudes toward these groups based on a very well-established source, the feeling thermometer of the American National Election Study, which measures feelings of warmth toward various groups. These figures will, these graphs will show uh, significant changes in the feeling of warmth toward various groups between 93 and 2016 for Democrats, Republicans, and Independents. So the first figure shows a, a very pretty stark decline in warmth toward uh, African Americans in recent years after a period where positive feelings became more prominent. So as you can see, the blue is Republican, the red is Democrat. The decline is particularly strong among Republicans, and it could very well reflect the widespread association between African American poverty and lack of self-reliance. Uh, the strength of this association varies with, of course, Democrats showing more positive attitude, but nevertheless you have a decline in warmth toward African Americans after 2010, well, 2013 probably. The second figure shows comparable uh, downturn of warmth felt toward Hispanics uh, for uh, uh, Republicans and a similar uh, trend when it comes to illegal immigrants. Um, 
But we can contrast uh, these trends with attitudes toward LGBTQ, which shows an increase in positive feeling that is continuous. So this is not altogether surprising, given that the LGBTQ community is not clearly associated with poverty. In fact, this group is often depicted as made up of childless professional men with considerable uh, purchasing power. However, if we think about attitudes toward LBGTQ on more nuanced issues, uh, we find that uh, these attitudes are more mixed when respondents are asked whether people should use the bathroom of their birth gender or their gender identity. So here we see pattern where Republicans are clearly uh, far less supportive than liberals, than Democrats, conservatives are less supportive than liberals, men than women, young people versus old people. So um, although boundaries against LBGTQ have uh, weakened, uh, this trend is represented unequally across various uh, segments of the population. So given these trends, it's fair to conclude that the diffusion of neoliberalism, uh, which is associated with this issue of uh, self-reliance and poverty, is driving us toward a more divided society, one where group boundaries have generally become more pronounced and where solidarity is typically on the decline. So the failure of the American dream and the rigidification of group boundaries constitute a real crisis for American society, I believe as serious as the threat to democracy that political scientists Levitsky and Ziblatt address in their wonderful book, How Democracy Dies, and they mobilize the knowledge of political scientists to give us lessons about how to address the crisis. Well, simultaneously, similarly, I believe we can mobilize the tools of cultural sociology to try to figure out how to find a way forward, which is what I've tried to do, but this talk is much more developed when it comes to diagnosing the crisis than in finding uh, recipes for uh, the future, because in fact, thinking about how to foster hope is very complicated. And I think, as I said, that we don't need a new master narrative that would replace the American dream. I think we need to think about how to foster hope in many pockets of society. And I look forward to your ideas in the uh, question period. Uh, as I said, most of my colleagues I discussed this with are extremely uh, pessimistic about how to find a, a way out of the current uh, cultural crisis, which I presume, uh, you know, the Trump crisis parallels the Brexit crisis. So uh, how should we move forward? Social and political uh, psychologists, this is, oh, yeah, um, so social and political psychologists are currently studying how to create bridges between opposing political factions and how to avoid feeding a zero-sum view of cultural conflicts. And this challenge is becoming even more important as media report a hardening of opposition between conservative and liberals or Republicans and Democrats. So research shows that uh, pitting one position against the other is counterproductive. Many people are writing about this tribalism instinct, which pushes each group to defend their position and leads to further polarization. And the polarization has been uh, documented by Yosha Benkler and others in this depiction of exchanges of tweet concerning media coverage of the 2016 election showing the, the production of silos. But in fact, there's another study that just came out uh, that uh, provides us a far less polarized view of American society, where uh, the two extremes on the one and the progressive activist, which includes 
rich white people, uh, highly educated with professional degrees, uh, pitted against the devoted conservative who are also rich white people. Uh, these two groups uh, are pretty small at both ends at the end of the day, and you have a lot of people in the middle, including 26% of politically disengaged. So the public sphere would be less polarized when it comes to a public opinion as opposed to looking at what's happening in the media. But uh, this gives us hope, but nevertheless, there's a lot of work to do. So we can ask, there are two sets of questions here which have to do with the content of these messages of hope, and on the other hand, what medium should we use to, to uh, where can the, the messages be transmitted? And in order to uh, address the second question, I think we, I will briefly describe cultural diffusion as it happens through different channels at the macro, meso, and micro level. So this is like, you know, introduction to the public sphere. At the macro level, you have uh, messages about society as a whole that are transmitted through printed, visual, and digital material, through expressive culture, ideologies, and tradition, and they are diffused top-down by, for instance, producers of political discourse who aim to shape national political culture and political identities as a whole. At the meso level, you have institutions that also contribute to defining group boundaries. So we can think of categorization systems, such as the census, taxation, spending, and policies, which all contain messages about who is in and who is out, who deserves deserving it, who should be contributing, and who gets what. They are expressions. These messages are expression of relative group positioning and relative legitimacy, as well as group boundaries. So one example is the adoption of same-sex marriage in 32 uh, American states, and a study shows that after those 32 states passed same-sex marriage law, the level of suicide among LBGTQ youth in high school declined by 7%. So these laws send very clear messages about who's in and who's out. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. But these institutions don't exist uh, without human beings. So within them, we find cultural intermediaries, which includes us, social scientists, journalists, religious leaders, media and entertainment specialists, and other creative and knowledge workers who contribute to the production and diffusion of messages about collective identity, relative status, and pecking order, and solidarity. So these intermediary groups often collaborate with social movements, NGOs, and other civil society organizations in framing the ideology of group. And I think a lot of the uh, narratives of hope can emerge from these groups. Finally, in everyday interaction, at the micro level, human beings give meaning to their interactions and exchange. They form networks of influence that compete with more remote cultural messages with the media, for instance, in shaping how people understand reality. So these networks, in turn, are shaped by resources, spatial proximity, and segregation. So together, contact and network and access to cultural repertoire feed the boundary work and the intergroup attitudes as experience in daily uh, interactions. So members of stigmatized uh, groups, for instance, can contribute to defining their collective identity through interaction with other groups, in part by contesting institutional representation of who they are. So these are the channels through which meaning travel and which could be mobilized to diffuse new narratives of hope that can serve as alternative to the bankrupt American dream. 
But what is uh, needed at this uh, juncture is really to think about what these narratives of hope could be about. And I have three proposals. They are just the start of a conversation. One is diffusing a diversity of criteria of evaluation. Another one is to destigmatize the stigmatized group. And the third is to promote uh, ordinary universalism. So by uh, diversity of criteria of evaluation, I'm talking about criteria such as authenticity, integrity, and intimacy, which can appeal to a very wide range of people. Uh, so I'll describe to you what these three approaches might be. So cultural intermediaries, such as social scientists, should engage, as I've tried to do today, in an ex explicit critique of how the current crisis is fed by neoliberal values and promote a diversity of criteria of uh, worth. So this would, for instance, if you think about how workplaces are promoting work uh, family balance, that's an example of how we're sending to workers the notion that their value as mothers and fathers are equally valuable as uh, their uh, role as economic contributors. And these are uh, struggles for the definition of what workers are about that are happening every day in the workplace. We can think systematically about re-engineering the place where we work and we live to, pro to promote a more multi-dimensional definition of who, pe who people are. Maternity leaves for parental leave, for instance, also contribute to this. Um, there's a lot of mechanisms of solidarity or re-engineering collective identity uh, that uh, we discovered through what states have done. When I was growing up in Canada, Pierre Elliott Trudeau promoted a new model of Canadian society anchored in multiculturalism. He told Canadians what distinguishes us from Americans is the fact that we have a multicultural nation and many uh, uh, public interest messaging tools were then mobilized. There were Ukrainian dance in front of the parliament every week. Many, many tools were used to celebrate uh, multiculturalism. And I have a graduate student who is now looking at the truth and reconciliation uh, uh, strategies in Australia where they're doing uh, the same thing. So we can look at such uh, project of re-engineering collective identities to think about ways of publicizing uh, how to give representation of uh, groups that are more multidimensional. I have more specific talks, th thoughts about understanding how groups that are stigmatized can become destigmatized. And here I'm drawing on a paper that was published in 2016 where we compared um, the process by which people living with HIV AIDS, African Americans, and people labeled as obese worked uh, together with uh, knowledge specialists to basically destigmatize their groups. And we compare systematically what kind of knowledge specialists were involved in each of the groups. The group that was more successful was people uh, living with AIDS, and the least successful group was people labeled as obese. So through this kind of study, it is possible to see how representations of group can be re-engineered, and this is a, a cultural process that involves institution and cultural messaging, and I pit this against a more individualist approach, such as the use of the implicit association test, which is now widely used in organization. So, for instance, it was used this year by Starbucks when uh, some of their uh, employees refused to uh, force um, 
two black customers to call the police on two black customers. And uh, the basic idea is that everyone, there's a lot of good people who are racist, even if they're not aware that they're racist. And through uh, making them aware of this, we can transform their worldview. Well, I presume that uh, instead of adopting this very individualist method, it's much more efficient to try to transform the actual frames through which groups are perceived. And cultural intermediaries, people like us, all uh, forms of uh, knowledge workers have a crucial play to role here, to, uh, crucial uh, role to play here. And finally, uh, ordinary universalism, what do I mean by this? I mean that we need to advocate for narratives that resonate for the largest member, that is to publicize form of uh, ordinary uh, universalism that are used uh, by the non-college educated. So what do I mean? When researching the dignity of working man, I did interviews with North African immigrants in Paris, most of them blue-collar workers. In this context, I asked them, what makes people equal? And I found in general that their answers uh, pointed to metaphor anchored in everyday life. For instance, the belief that we're essentially the same when it comes to morality. People told me there's good and bad people in all races anchored in our biology. We all spend nine months in our mother's womb. We all have ten fingers anchored in our spiritual uh, existence as uh, children of God. So there are really bits of evidence that are grounded in shared everyday experience, and that for me contrasts very strongly with the ideology, the liberal theory concerning individual and its property that we find with the Enlightenment or French republicanism equally abstract. So there are experiences of sameness that are anchored in daily uh, interaction. They point to what all human beings share. So it is likely that such evidence would increase the likelihood that people feel empathy by broadening the circle of people they come to define as like us and to foster solidarity even with members of a stigmatized group. So this is a case where perhaps by, by um, trying to connect with conceptions of universalism that people really mobilize in their daily life, we may be able to to go beyond the kind of tribalism that is naturalized in this uh, growing literature on moral tribes, which I dislike. So in conclusion, I would say that these suggestions about how to foster narratives of hope are really, for me, just means to uh, start a conversation as a way to foster a collective reflection about the way forward. So we know that uh, students of democratic participation have invested an enormous amount of energy in ex understanding how to stimulate engagement. It became a, a collective project in Vancouver in the um, Porto Alegre, there's been many, many uh, conversations around how to do this, and I think it would be much more uh, meaningful to try to foster such a collective conversation about vision of the future that would feed people's sense of hope. So to truly tackle the potential role of new narratives in addressing the current crisis, we need to consider how to maximize their cultural impact given the current changes that are happening in the structure of the public sphere and its political polarization in particular. So right now we have many social scientists who are working on the production of fake news, on the outrage industry, on the siloing of the American political culture, on net neutrality, and the role of the social media in feeding political uh, polarization. And I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. I think 
as we think about how to scale up uh, messages of hope, narratives of hope, we really need to understand better where American learns about reality if we want to influence their framework. So I, as I was preparing for this talk, I read a couple of recent papers on, for instance, the field of journalism in the U.S., and since it is so totally over-dominated by the commercial sector and the public radio with uh, television are really underdeveloped, it turns out that local evening news is where Americans, most Americans, learn about the world. So the question, if you want to influence this as a source of information, it's extremely complicated to understand how do you influence this. Same thing for churches, which are the most segregated place in American society. How do you create bridges in institutions that uh, are so uh, class and racially segregated? So in conclusion, I will simply say that we cannot forget the role of emotions in the production in the, of these of powerful narratives, because narratives, after all, are meant to have rhetorical force and to incite action. So this is another topic that will require reflection, and it is extremely urgent that we do so given the pessimistic mood that surrounds us today. So I remain hopeful in the sense that Hope has always been part of um, the human project, and I think it's quite symptomatic that so many people have problems today to think about how to generate hope. But I think that it is partly urgent that we mobilize our energy to really think systematically about this issue today, and I really welcome your thoughts on this crucial uh, topic as we engage in the Q&A. Thank you. I'm putting my email here so that you can also email me if you have suggestions. <laughs> uh, all right, we have uh, a bit of time for questions uh, for Michelle Lamont. Um, there are stewards coming around with microphones, so please wait until the microphone gets to you. Um, as always, Bear's saying in an academic context, please try to ask one question. Um, please try to keep it relatively brief so as many people can be involved as possible. Uh, so we'll start back here. Uh, yeah. uh, thank you for that fascinating talk. Um, I, I was so surprised like that you linked uh, the concept of hope with the resilience, the concept of resilience, because in you know, biology or ecology, the concept actually is uh, coin with the opposite, like crisis time, the time of crisis in general, like in biology, for example, or in natural disasters, the concept is I mean, becomes like the salient during the you know the crisis, not the hope. Actually, it, it, it was really interesting to see in that concept. But my question is about the third point uh, you highlighted, the promoting uh, that like the universal universalism. Actually, uh, considering uh, nowadays. It, like there are lots of people discussing uh, the neoliberal critic of cosmopolitanism. Of what? Cosmopolitanism. Cosmopolitanism. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, I, I would like to hear what do you think about like the, your ideas? This prom promoting universalism is linked with that critique. Like you think cosmopolitanism is stuck with the like the certain class issues. So. Uh, that's why it triggers populism in different countries, especially in the it West. Triggers what? Triggers populism. Like populism, the, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, I would like to hear those kind of remarks. Thank you. 
Well, the kind of cosmopolitanism I'm talking about is not the one of the upper middle class that finds itself flying simultaneously in and out of New York. You know, uh, the, kind, the kind of cosmopolitanism that Craig Calhoun wrote about, it's really, I'm talking specifically about ordinary cosmopolitanism. The fact, you know, other examples, one guy who's a roofer, you imagine, as a job, you know, repairing roofs. We all have to get up in the morning to go to the baker to buy our bread. So they're really about gestures that are, or, you know, we all spend nine months in our mother's womb. They are not tied to class the way that a lot of the cosmopolitanism literature uh, has been. So I think we can think about forms of universalism that are truly not class-bound. I think a lot of the criticism of the cosmopolitan literature, cosmopolitanism literature has been about the fact that people were blind to the ways in which they were tied to class advantages. Is that what you had in mind? Or are there aspects that I'm missing? Yeah, sort, of, sort of, because I, uh, I was wondering, because uh, I, I, I thought like the, uh, your effort bringing the emotions into yeah. the discussion as well, uh, which was vastly ignored in sociology so far, um, like the, those social psychological indicators in shaping our ideas. So that's why I was wondering whether you think, um, I mean, because of that, um, omission today, we are not aware of that, yeah. you know, possibility in promoting universalism yeah. among different social classes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, the sociology of emotion is an extremely vibrant field right now. For instance, James Jasper, who's one of the leaders of the field of social movement, just came out with a book on emotion and social movement. I also draw from the work of one of my colleagues, Marshall Gans, who's a former union organizer and who's spending a lot of time training people in leadership and he's really focused on the emotional aspect of narrative in developing what he calls a narrative of us, a narrative of them, and a narrative of now to really incite people into action. So I think that's really crucial to create resonance, so, which is about intersubjective confirmation. Question uh, back here. Hi, I'm Josh. Thanks so much for coming. It was really great hearing you speak. Um, I'm a sociology student here. Um, and so, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the problem of wealth inequality in the states all kind of happened at the dawn of the neoliberal era um, in the 1980s, where you have deregulation and massive tax cuts. So, I'm curious is the, ample, is the answer as simple as just, okay, let's raise taxes again, go back to the pre neoliberal tax rate, and uh, have a more distributive welfare state, or is it more complicated than just any tax policy? Well, clearly the message I'm uh, trying to convey is uh, one of uh, multidimensional social change that involves transforming the frameworks through which we understand reality. So uh, increasing taxation, as I mentioned, if the working class really thinks of itself as uh, the group that is carrying on its back the, the rest of society, um, this is kind of a dead end. I think we need to re-engineer how they understand, and this is a kind of 
dangerous technocratic answer too. You know, the downside of my presentation is to say, let's ask the knowledge expert, re-engineer the frameworks through which people understand reality, which is why I keep saying I'm not proposing one master narrative. This has to be a multi-dimensional, meso-macro uh, uh, exchange in how we think about this together. It has to be kind of a collective delibera del uh, deliberating uh, the relative effort, but I don't at all uh, advocate uh, an economic solution. I think that uh, this is uh, what economists have been promoting for a long time, and it totally overlooks how any policy includes messages about who's worthy and who's not. So if you think of the Clinton uh, reform of welfare to work, it was all about uh, uh, you know, the economic benefit of sending people back to work and forcing them to work in order to get welfare. But the impact of this on the stigmatization of the poor was totally overlooked with a lot of unintended consequences on the mental health of the poor, etc. So I think that's where the collaboration between sociologists and economists in informing policymakers is absolutely crucial because a lot of the things I'm talking about, economists are simply not equipped to think about stigmatization and the production of meaning. So. Um, back here in the blue sweater. Thanks. Hi, I'm Helena. I work for a public opinion research agency called Comres, and I just had a quick question about mainly the last section of your talk on the extent to which it's sort of politically convenient to have narratives of decline and the role have narratives, what? of decline instead of hope for politicians yeah. and the extent to which they're involved in perpetuating stigmatization or whether you think that will disappear once it sort of happens from the bottom up and groups within themselves start to start that process. Once which groups stop the process? Um, so whether it happens from the bottom up and, mm -hmm. you know, as groups begin that process of destigmatization, politicians mm -hmm. will stop preying yeah. on the narratives of decline or whether the extent to which they have control over those frames of meaning. Well, the model of destigmatization I presented uh, based on secondary literature on the success cases, such as HIV-AIDS, uh, involve a collaboration between group members with uh, knowledge specialists, medical specialists who showed, for instance, that AIDS was not only uh, hurting promiscuous gay men who spend their time in, you know, places, but could actually, uh, you know, it's a disease that could really uh, you know, um, be, anyone could be victim. So the issue of how equivalences were created between stigmatized group and the average citizen was crucial and then a strategy of diffusing this message very broadly so that people ended up not thinking that catching AIDS was something that could happen by going to the public bathroom. Uh, so I think it's a case of collaboration between social worker, uh, social uh, movement activists and knowledge specialists that gives us lessons. I don't think we... Of course, you have uh, opportunist politician who will uh, use uh, immigrants and the poor as uh, scapegoats to, to rally. This is exactly what we're seeing with um, 
with populism, but uh, I think the public, the production of uh, frames through which groups are perceived is the collaborative, you know, the literature and um, sociology of science, the work of Bruno Latour, for instance, on how images become black box and taken for granted. I think we need to revisit that literature to really think about it as a, a process of collective meaning making, but think about which levers uh, uh, can be activated in influencing how this reality ends up being black boxed. Um, so that is how, and I think political, uh, you know, people who work in public opinions or uh, image makers, policy, political, uh, marketing people have a role to play in this, but unfortunately they also have, uh, you know, stake in the game in wanting to win, so they're not necessarily thinking about uh, how to, uh, you know, produce, uh, engineer a uh, public sphere that is more uh, healthy in terms of maximizing collective, um, you know, well-being, so... Um, isn't there a challenge um, concerning uh, underlying all this is uh, health, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. yeah, um, and how um, <clears throat> a healthy society, the goal of a healthy society, is antithetical to to corporations yeah. and media and advertising. So how is that to be achieved under those circumstances? Well, um, that's such a big question. You know, we know that, you know, there's this huge literature that came largely from here about, uh, from the UK, the work of Marmot or Wilkinson on the impact of inequality on collective well-being. The more unequal societies uh, are, the less the subjective well-being of the uh, the population is. So one answer would be, of course, let's reduce inequality. We know that the uh, life expectancy in the U.S. has been declining steadily over the last five years. And But this is not only true of the U.S., it's also true of, uh, I believe, the U.K. Um, so, I, sorry? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's also a very small society, and it's a society... Uh, that uh, has a, uh, a low level of uh, diversity. So I think uh, we found similar uh, success in Norway, for instance, but, uh, or in Sweden, but there are also societies that have had major challenges as their population has become more uh, diverse. The case of Norway, of course, with the, uh, the oil uh, has allowed them to sustain a level of uh, prosperity that is quite unusual, but uh, I know that the model of incorporations of immigrants, for instance, in Finland, uh, as compared to France, for instance, has been far more oriented toward giving immigrants a, a greater sense of uh, cultural membership as opposed to forcing them to integrate a strictly defined model of uh, French republicanism where the, the social workers would be kind of uh, in a very uh, directive, paternalistic way, uh, force-feeding them uh, the uh, 
the dominant, uh, you know, scripts of self that French society, uh, you know, imposes on immigrants. So this involves, you know, models of uh, integration of immigrants. It involves dealing with all these groups that can be stigmatized in a way that the, the mobilization of the state capacity to do this in Finland was extremely uh, intense. This is what I know of the case based on the dissertation that I'm, I've read on the topic. So uh, um, it's much easier to, uh, you know, to engineer these things in small, abundant societies. The Canadian case, the Finnish case, the Norwegian case are often, you know, are also cases that rank extremely high on all the quality of life uh, indexes. But uh, yeah. It's, uh, it presumes enormous state capacity. Um, right here, the mic up front. Also, oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, as an American living over here for while all this has been happening there, and as someone who was raised um, on the stories of how my immigrant grandparents came with nothing, uh-huh. learned the language. My grandfather put himself through medical school, put his kids, his sons through medical school. His grandson won a Nobel Prize. And, you know, that's, that was the immigrant, that was the American dream. What forces in the States, I mean, the, shock, the culture shock, the shock for certain generations, certain ages of still assuming that, you know, I mean, it's a bit like Rip Van Winkle who went to sleep and woke up. And if you remember the story of Rip Van Winkle, he went to sleep before the American Revolution, woke up after, and everything had changed, and he didn't know who he was, and he didn't know. What, what is happening in the States to help people get through and understand and adapt to these changes? Because the pain, the collective pain, must be terrible for everything that you learned about your culture it isn't true anymore. Yeah, it's. It, I think it's extremely challenging. I was uh, talking with uh, a colleague two days ago whose parents survived uh, Auschwitz, and he was saying that he cannot believe um, that people like Kissinger, whose own parents survived Auschwitz, are... Um, you know, witnessing what Trump is doing now, you know, uh, with uh, the State Department and uh, staying there silent, you know, why are all these distinguished Republicans who have been, uh, you know, public leaders for all of their lives uh, being so opportunistic in remaining silent at the time when they have the, the, you know, the resources and the symbolic capital, if they were not complicit in what's happening, uh, the, the scenario would unfold uh, quite differently. So uh, I don't know. I think people will look back and think of this as a period in American history where, um, uh, you know, the opportunism of the Republican leadership will really be uh, blamed for a lot of what's happening. I think given how Trump is uh, exercising his leadership in the, through a, a kind of formula of realpolitik that is absolutely, um, you know, without uh, any, uh, you know, concession, it's very hard to understand where would the resistance come out if not from within the party. And for me, too, this is where I'm most puzzled, you know, that 
so many of these people don't have a stake in at least reassuring, you know, assuring that some of the crucial parts of the system remains in place. So, is is there a palpable grief over there? Well, you know, where I am, <laughs> you know, I live in Boston. Uh, although we've elected the gover Republican governors, uh, it's always been a direct, you know, corridor linking. Uh, the Democratic Party in Washington to Harvard. So uh, in my part of the world, yes, but uh, as we well know, this, the, the, the issue of uh, uh, the, the uh, geographic polarization is, is really very uh, profound. And uh, at the same time, the, uh, one of the, the figures I presented suggests that the population may be far less polarized than what we hear. So I don't know. Is there a mic up top? Yeah. Hi. Um, I just wanted to sort of return back to hope and inequality, yeah. really, uh, and just ask you whether those things, how, how we all feel about hope and inequality, because if we ask anybody, every, everybody thinks that inequality is bad and everybody wants hope. But what happens when some people's hope is other people's nightmare? Because I, I, I've been thinking a lot about Oscar Lewis's work mm -hmm. um, and when he went to Cuba. And what he said is that um, after the revolution, hope had returned to Cuba, even though people's economic situations were still the same, but there was hope. Um, and I think that's really, I think that's an interesting question because in order for hope to have returned to a group of people, another group of people had to, you know, they, they, the hope returned because people's homes and land and businesses were taken away from them, mm -hmm. which I have no problem with at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, I, I, but I, I think you know there won't be a they, they, that won't be a popular <laughs> that won't be popular. Yeah. Well, similarly, we can think of the reaction to Obama as uh, responding to the same kind of logic that you're describing. Certainly, uh, his election and his re-election were sources of hope for a great many people, including myself. I mean, it was absolutely palpable, but. Uh, the sense of displacement, uh, the, the sense of group positioning for the white working class in some part of the country clearly fed the, uh, the feelings that led to the populist wave that we are uh, witnessing now. So uh, I guess uh, in terms of strict logic of, you know, what benefits to the largest number, this is what we may want to think about, you know. And also notions of social justice and respect of, of human rights, you know, some of these values that uh, are supposed to motivate all of us in a democracy, so. But, so, so like Brexit and Donald Trump are bringing hope to some people. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know. Well, they're not because they're both... <laughs> Yes, I think it's true. On the other hand, I think we want to think about uh, just as the rigidification of group boundaries that I was uh, 
uh, documenting, there are other politicians that may bring hope without necessarily bringing about hatred about other groups. So this logic of zero sum that animates much of what he's doing, I think, is really pernicious and, uh, you know, anti-democratic. So uh, from this perspective, we need to think about how the public sphere is engineered and what kind of messages may allow the, uh, uh, you know, prosperity of the largest number. And I don't, you know, clearly it's not what he's promoting, so. <laughs> um, here in the white shirt. Um, hi, Dr. Lamont. Thank you so much for coming to speak today. It was um, fun, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, as an American first-year undergrad student studying abroad here for my first semester, um, I'm interested in knowing um, how can we promote universal, um, yeah, just universia universality um, when without belittling the struggles of minority groups and without um, without ignoring the um, claims that. Uh, other sociologists, such as Michael Eric Dyson, would say um, that we should uh, also take into consideration that we can't completely obliterate um, the uh, just group differences. And um, how can we still promote that universality when there are different groups that mm -hmm. are still perpetuating them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's, I think, why I proposed a multi-pronged approach, which also involves working toward the destigmatization of stigmatized group. Uh, in some ways, you know, if you are both promoting uh, ordinary cosmopolitanism, or that's why I use also the term universalism, the things that all human beings have in common, at the same time as you make room to acknowledge the, the historical tragedies that for instance, African-American have experienced, uh, which, you know, is essential, I think, for their destigmatization to, uh, to uh, you know, diffuse broadly uh, narratives about the injustice that they have experienced. These things are not incompatible, I think. They can uh, very much uh, be accomplished at the same time. Yes. Um, let's go right behind in the white jacket. Hi, thank you for your lecture. Um, it made me think about the way we um, talk about climate change and how to address climate change because we focus a lot of, uh, uh, on individuals and that they need to reduce their personal emissions, even though it's actually a handful of uh, businesses that are responsible for the vast majority of global carbon emissions. Uh, and at the same time, as you mentioned, there is really a norm of having a high level of consumption in society, and we also see on social media, on Instagram, how uh, young rich people uh, step into their private jets and take photos of their luxury lives. So it's really, like, it's very hard for an individual to know how to do and how to uh, behave in this uh, climate crisis. So do you think neoliberalism has something to... Uh, to say, or if, uh, is it because of neoliberalism, this uh, focus on individual responsibility? Well, to the extent that one can associate uh, Donald Trump with the promotion of uh, capital interest at any cost, and we have seen how he is uh, 
you know, promoting a number of policies that are uh, not at all in favor of uh, protecting, you know, our environment, the relationship is, is pretty, this is exactly what Rebecca is, uh, is studying. Uh, the, the picture is, is extremely bleak uh, and the impact will be enormous and it will take a long time before we can repair what's happening. At the same time, I think in terms of... Uh, Neoliberalism also comes with a focus on the individuals as the actor. And what we know, for instance, of veganism, which is, or, you know, mindfulness or healthism, all these very individual responses to uh, the current situation, they, uh, I mean, you've certainly seen these, uh, these videos such as Cowspiracy, where you have the battle between the vegan and the people who are more focused on uh, uh, climate change, is it more important to uh, flush your toilet or to eat, to not eat beef? To me, I mean, it's, uh, these debates are very much a reflection of neoliberalism because it's mostly focused on individual action as opposed to uh, the cultural and uh, institutional engineering. But it doesn't hurt, on the other hand. So, yeah. Um, we'll come up front. Thank you. Um, can you say something about the role of spectacular violence in the States? Why so many seem to find that a solution to their ills, be it body slamming an opponent or sending bombs in the post? Is that simply a symptom of the issues that you have raised, or is it something that goes deeper? Um, well, um, I think of these... Uh, These acts of violence are to do, I think, partly with uh, symbolic politics, with groups that have been uh, enormously marginalized, that are, uh, you know, that cannot necessarily think about legitimate channels for expressing their, their position and their, their voice. Uh, I think when it comes to Muslim societies, uh, Muslim groups in, in Europe, I mean, of, you know, um, that they want to be defined as martyrs, I think, is very much has to do with the local community in which they live. They don't want to be martyrs in my eyes, but in the eyes of their co-religionists. And uh, symbolic politics is crucial to what's happening in these contexts. I mean, but then we can look at how the, the process of incorporation of immigrants in various societies, the ways in which, for instance, uh, Canada has been creating a system that allows um, a mainstream legal system to function hand-in-hand hand with the Islamic law, which conveys to the Muslim population a sense of cultural membership that is uh, functioning quite well if you compare it to the far more uh, repressive approach that uh, is present in, uh, in France. For instance, one of my friends, John Bowen, who's a leading expert on Islam in Europe, is uh, doing a project comparing how Islamic law is uh, used in the management of um, uh, Islamic population in uh, France, the UK, and uh, the Netherlands. Uh, finding patterns that are really strongly contrasted. And in France, you have a far more authoritarian approach that puts a lot of emphasis on maintaining security and using at least, say, high schools as the site where this is done. So um, 
My answer to this is I think we really need to think about the process by which various countries are creating mechanisms for the incorporation of uh, um, Muslim populations so that you're not, uh, you know, stigmatizing them to the point where uh, violence is the most readily is so readily accessible as a possible response. So the uh, giving cultural citizenship to immigrants is uh, should be con you know conceived as an important mission in that context. Can I just ask a follow-up? Sorry, very briefly. I mean, more specifically among white populations, there seems to be an American right wing. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. um, Associations with guns, uh, mass shootings, yeah. etc. Yeah. That seem to be. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, that is complicated. Uh, for many uh, Americans, the right to bear arms is is uh, understood as the very premise of what citizenship is about, and it has to do with refusing state intervention in their daily life. It becomes an extremely powerful symbol to which they attach as much or more importance than freedom of speech. And, you know, I think you cannot underestimate the importance of this uh, commitment. A friend of mine wrote a book, uh, Eric Bleich, titled, I believe, Freedom to Hate, which is about uh, how hate speech is controlled in Europe versus the U.S. And in the U.S., I can literally put on my front lawn a burning cross. Uh, everyone knows that it is a symbol that is associated with the KKK, and yet it is legal because freedom of speech is, you know, such enshrined in uh, the Constitution. Uh, so the basic frameworks against which these rights are understood uh, are literally incommensurable across continents. And I think books such as Eric's really allows us to understand how uh, these these men personally, I don't know any people who do that, but uh, you know clearly they live in subcultures where this is understood to be a very legitimate way of approaching reality. And uh, I mean Kathleen Blee. I mean there's a number of wonderful authors who are studying this uh, far right in the U.S. who could answer your question much better than I can. I mean. Obviously, the readily, uh, readily available guns everywhere doesn't help the situation, but this is me as a Canadian responding. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm going to exercise Chair's prerogative yes. to ask a final question, which is we're in a university setting. Um, so I'd be curious to hear both how you think universities are part of the diagnosis of the problem in terms of how we value an education, a university education, uh, the value of universities in the larger society, and then also the role that universities might play mm -hmm. in being part of a solution. Yeah. I think uh, many people think we're part of the problem. Uh, this uh, graph I presented on the political polarization of the American population, one of the main important findings is that almost everyone hates PCness, mm -hmm. and universities are the source of PCness, so we're kind of turning off everyone. And many people perceive universities as a, a world inhabited by highly uh, privileged and snotty people who look down at the rest of the population. So I think if we were to um, 
as a, as a community, become far more self-aware of our privilege, we would turn off fewer people, and I think we wouldn't feed the culture war. I mean, I don't want to do an entire mea culpa, because obviously the culture war is being fed by many other forces behind our own action, but I think we cannot underestimate the extent to which we, uh, we stimulate extremely strong uh, antipathies, uh, you know, and uh, people don't understand that, in fact, tenure gives you the privilege of working 65 hours a week as opposed to teaching one course a semester. You know, I mean, we need to do a much better job at explaining to people uh, how complex our, our work is and that it's far from being the gravy train that many people think it is. So as far as educating young people, I think, um, you know, it's a, Many academics totally underestimate how important this is. I'll give you just one example. Um, you know, there are these far-right groups that invite on campuses uh, far-right authors such as Charles Murray, the author of The Bell Curve, and this is part of a very well-subsidized plan to, uh, to uh, invite provocateurs on campus so that the students will decide to, to contest their right their freedom of speech, and then it gets into the media and people say, once more you see these progressive students are anti-democratic. There's a big movement around this currently among uh, in American universities. And this happened at Harvard, um, and there was, uh, Charles Murray was invited to speak, and instead of boycotting, his, uh, instead of, you know, demonstrating against his, his right to speak, the students decided to organize a counter panel, and I was on that counter panel, and the room was full, there was 300 students, obviously a lot of LBGTQ students, many, many students of color. And I remember one student in engineering who had never taken any, he doesn't, didn't know about construction of identity or anything else. And this is really a guy who was just puzzled by the fact that the author of the bell curve would be invited to come to speak at an American university given that he had written about the intellectual inferiority of black people. To him, that was totally puzzling. And him speaking about this really made a strong impression to, on me concerning how important our teaching is in terms of giving our students the tool to make sense of their identity and to develop a conception of reality that is a little bit more complex and to understand how meaning is negotiated and how group boundaries can become more rigid. So if anything, I, my view of my vision for the social sciences is that we should be even more um, aware of the importance of what we're doing and even more power, you know, insistent on putting it out there. And uh, maybe a little bit less concern with the narcissism of small differences among sociologists. I mean, this is a moment where the discipline is in a complicated moment in that, you know, th there can be uh, instances where the left is being attacked by the uh, extreme left for not being left enough at the time when Trump is creating a lot of, uh, you know, trouble for everyone. So I think doing a kind of collective psychotherapy in terms of clarifying our thinking. Where should we put our attention? I think this is clearly not the moment to engage in the narcissism of small differences among uh, sociologists to, to be really clearly focused on, you know, the big game. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, thank you all for being here. Thank you very much to our speaker. Um,